Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Bradley Gerard. How are you doing, Bradley? Very good, thanks, John. Yep. Good. And Alex Newman. Hi, John. How are you, Alex? I'm fine, thanks. How are you Excellent. doing? Yeah, good. I'm all right. I'm all right. And you've written the cover feature for us this week. I have. Yeah. So it's a good one. It's a good one. Good Not stuff. sure how well timed it is, but uh, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. It's about oil, by the way. Uh, which is why I suggest it's perhaps not so well-timed, given we've had a bit of a pullback this week in the oil price, but we're reasonably positive long-term. We're yeah. going to go through some of the pros and cons of uh, the bull and bear arguments for and against being bullish on the, the oil price in a minute. Bradley, let's start with uh, the news section. Perhaps we can pull some of the results into that because it's been the first busy week for results of the summer. Yeah, it's getting very busy with the results, as you say. I mean, I, I guess a, a key kind of theme that is definitely pervasive, and I'm sure readers will notice it reading through the magazine, obviously everyone's just trying to get a handle on what Brexit actually means in the here and now. I'm getting so bored with that word. I know, I know, I am as well, but people want to know and businesses are, you know, sort of either using it as an excuse or saying actually it's had no impact at all. Mm. So that is that is the big theme, but I suppose to step away slightly from that, we've had sort of um, some better than expected GDP growth um, that was announced this week. So um, It's a technical thing though, isn't it, really? I yeah. Mean, so also, services was a bit softer. Yeah. Manufacturing was a bit stronger than expected, which yeah. I think some commentators have suggested is because it's, it's essentially a volatile sector anyway. Construction was down. Yeah, it is. Which we so, kind of knew about. A slightly mixed picture, but obviously services growing is important because it's such a big part of the economy. Um, and, and also, I suppose, a caveat to the GDP data is that obviously it only goes up to really about the, I think it's the 30th of um, June. So yes, a week after the referendum, but not really covering July, which has obviously been a few more weeks since the vote. So Yeah, we, I mean, we haven't really talked on this podcast about the PMI, uh, the flash PMI stats that came out from market last week as yeah. well, which were, were quite hideous. And I think a lot of people really were quite worried when they, they saw them. We actually do touch upon that in this week's new spotlight, you'll be pleased to know. So um, Harriet's done a good job of looking at some of the data that's come out. And um, actually, PMI data has, um, in the not too distant past, um, gone below um, sort of 50, which is, um, if it goes below that, and then suggests that the economy, all those sectors of the economy, are going to contract. Um, and in spite of that happening in about 98-ish and 2001, the country didn't go into recession, actually. Yes, GDP slowed, but actually it was only really on the graph that we've got in the new spotlight that will show, um, show listeners if they want to take a look. Actually, when PMI did you know, contract aggressively in 2008, 2009, GDP did come down as well, and then there was a recession. But oh, oh, eight, oh, nine was a whole different kettle of gravy. It, it absolutely was, yeah, but it's just... It just, it just <laughs> Sorry about that. Of course, but it just demonstrates the point that PMI... A contraction below 50 doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have a recession. I mean, no, I, arguably I, I, a recession is just two negative quarters of GDP growth. It doesn't have to be a Lehman. So. No, I mean, funny enough, 98, 99, I, I remember that well because that's when I entered the workplace. And I tell you what, no one, in, no one, no one except economists looked at PMI figures in those days. I mean, now PMI figures make the front page. Yeah. I mean, we're extraordinary times we live in. But 1999, I was saying, I used to work in uh, an advertising agency, quite a large one. And uh, I got the hunt with my boss one day. So I, so I basically, I knew that there were businesses springing up left, right and centre. It was the dot-com boom. And I, and I, got, I got the hump. And I told him where he could stick his job. <laughs> literally, literally walked out of the office without another job. And I had four job wow. offers within the space of two weeks. You know, I mean, you know, and PMIs at that point were contracting. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I worry about these, these stats and reading too much into them. <clears throat> yeah, know. exactly. I, th- I think that's kind of the, the point we're making is that you know, the, and as you say, they are they are becoming so increasingly covered. And I guess the 
the potential problem is, and it's a problem maybe for financial markets in general, is the fact that they are released very regularly and therefore only paint a picture of a very short amount of time. These ones weren't a regular release though, were they? They were a flash PMI update. So they weren't done with the full survey base and they were done at an irregular time. That's true. Uh, which, which I found sort of like, why are you doing that? Why not just wait till the, you need, you know, your, your scheduled release. I, I must admit, I thought there was something strange about the way they were released um, in, in terms of the timing. Just why? Because we're due a proper PMI scheduled update next week. Yeah, we are. I guess they just felt that with the amount of attention that um, ah, you know, Brexit... Attention. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Well, it's fair enough, isn't it? I mean, if, if people are incredibly um, engaged for whatever reason about what the market is doing and trying to figure it out, if you've got a bit of data, it might be beneficial for you to release it. Yeah. But what's that data really telling you? I mean, you know, I remember... I remember... Looking back to a month ago, <laughs> you know, when when when, everyone, when we all came into the office the day after the the referendum votes, you know, I mean, no one expected that result. There was a lot of despondency in the air. That hasn't really gone away. You know, people are in a kind of foul mood about what's happened, uh, especially in London. I mean, you know, is this really the time to be surveying people on their sentiments? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. It is a good point. Perhaps not, and perhaps maybe when. Uh, people are looking at these surveys they need to acknowledge things like that that if it is sentiment based if it's not actually on physical orders of things or transactions then sentiment's a a wavering thing and it can change quite quickly but doesn't necessarily mean that the fundamentals of a business or a a sector of the economy will necessarily change as dramatically as people's view of it you know appears to be I mean, the PMI stance, I mean, you know, listen, I'm not, I don't want to discount them entirely. I think we ought to be cautious at this stage. Uh, you know, there is, there, you know, sentiment does affect actually what happens. I don't think the PMIs are entirely sentiment based. I think there is some kind of, you know, relationship with actual business activity. So I don't want to discount them entirely. But, you know, I, I do think we should be careful reading too much into it, just as we should be careful reading too much into the uh, GDP figures that suggest we're growing. So I guess so, yeah. I guess in terms of um, if we're looking for sort of tangible or more tangible evidence of what companies are thinking post the vote you know we have had a few airlines now and this week we had Ryanair um, you know very overtly saying they're going to be cutting their UK capacity growth so they are clearly expecting that the demand for air travel from the UK will decrease and that could be due to multiple things it could be due to um, you know the increased amount of terrorism we're seeing globally it could be the fact that a lot of us probably fly to France there are strikes there so we're just thinking we won't bother but there are quite aggressive. Get a ferry instead. You could do, or not, <laughs> unless you want to wait fifteen hours in a, in a traffic jam to Uber. Exactly. So, I mean, I think that that is an interesting thing in the airline sector that you know they are actually cutting the planned growth they had in terms of seats um, available from the UK. But you called this, Bradley, didn't you? You did. I, call hi- this. I did highlight it as an issue. Very, very. Th- yeah, luckily, uh, about three weeks ago, uh, basically about a week before EasyJet sort of said, "Yeah, we're going to call it a bit." Wizz Air has said the same. Now we've had Ryanair, IAG, which owns British Airways. Um, they are very, very modestly, they say, going to be doing the same thing. But I think Ryanair's is the most aggressive. Actually, they're they're, they're going to be trimming the number of the, the frequency of routes from Stansted. They're not cutting any. But frequency is going to drop. Mm. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I would suggest that if there are passengers who want to fly from Stansted uh, using Ryanair or whoever, uh, they won't cut those routes. That suggests to me that perhaps 
those routes that they're going to cut weren't as popular as they thought they might be anyway. I mean, you know, is it, again, you, you know, well, possibly, who knows yeah. what it really means? Of course, and these things, you know, the, the, there's an argument that the what has happened since the, the vote is a very convenient excuse for people. They can say, look at all this uncertainty out there. Yes, we're going to, because of it, we're going to cut back our planned growth, whereas actually maybe they might have done that anyway if the vote had never been a thing. They might have been looking at demand and thinking, do you know what, terrorism's on the rise. I mean, people are always very bullish on tourism, especially in terms of the UK population. We're an island nation. We like to travel. Demand does come back. But you have got a lot of sort of factors, you know, potentially suppressing demand even without the Brexit vote. Well, indeed. I mean, people have been, we know they've been shifting their destinations anyway. So, I mean, you know, if you had capacity, you know, that was serving Turkey, yeah, you're going to be putting it back. I mean, we've had Thomas Cook uh, announce a third quarter update today and, I mean, exactly that. Obviously, their flights to Turkey are not popular and so a lot of their customers are um, choosing to fly elsewhere. The Canary Islands were very popular. The US, much more popular as well. Even um, despite the strong dollar? Yeah. Or weak pound, whichever way you want to look at it. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's true, yeah. Flights to the US were good and other, other Mediterranean locations, generally Spain, really, or Spanish islands, but... Yeah, I, I guess that's a benefit airlines have is their their planes are movable objects, so they can just fly somewhere else. But. Indeed, indeed. Okay, uh, right. What else have we got? Uh, BT, which we didn't really talk about last week, even though we planned to. Yeah, we we touched on it a bit. I guess I mean what's actually happened this week is that Ofcom, the telecoms regulator, has said that BT will not have to be completely split off from the group, which was a concern. It is, however, going to have to have its own independent board. And also, it will be in charge of its um, budget allocation. Although, I, th- I believe I'm right in saying that, that the budget it gets will be decided by BT. So, so this is op- OpenReach, it's, it's open infrastructure reach. division. Yeah, bigger pardon, right. yeah. So the OpenReach division we're talking about here. Um, so OpenReach will be able to cr- control what it spends its budget on, but it will receive its budget from BT. But MPs have effectively criticised BT for kind of underinvesting in the infrastructure that OpenReach is responsible for. And the reason that's important is that what BT's been doing, in the eyes of MPs anyway, is creating a lot of new infrastructure for uh, customers, but not really keeping up the old infrastructure to a decent standard, which actually prevents uh, competitors you know, having a decent um, infrastructure to put their services on. Yeah, so you got the likes of Talk Talk, uh, and I think they were very vocal about this decision. I don't I think, think they're, all they're of them very were. happy about it. No, Sky, Virgin as well. I mean, I think there's, they're probably deeply unhappy about it, but as a BT shareholder, it's um, a positive thing. Mm. Let's talk about activists. We talked about them briefly uh, last week, I think, with Ian. We did. Um, but you've written something else on this today because SAB uh, has been at the centre of this, uh, partly to do with the the, the pound uh, yeah. weakening but but I guess there's something else there too there, well yeah I mean it's, it's partly driven by by the, the weakening sterling which has in effect so uh, the deal we're talking about here obviously is one that's dubbed Mega Brew it's um, Anheuser Busch's um, attempts to buy SAB Miller and SAB is listed here in London um, it's actually the biggest UK corporate deal if it goes ahead um, it's vast and what's happened is that because of the fall in the pound that the value of the offer for those opting for a cash option has fallen. So um, ABI has said it will up its offer by £1 per share. And that's that, that's good. And it's, it's been kind of um, pushed along really by activists such as um, Elliott Advisors, which is the UK arm of um, Elliott in the US. And also um, Aberdeen Asset Management actually has been quite active in this as well. And they've even said, though, 
subsequent to this um, improved offer. Aberdeen has said that they don't think the improved offer is good enough. They think it should still be increased further. But we're at a divisive point now because ABI said that this is a final offer. Apparently those words are that they mean final. It's actually effectively a legal thing in mm, the UK mm. corporate governance code or um, takeover code. Um, so now if shareholders don't think that this improved offer is enough, ABI cannot, I don't think, legally improve it. So we're at potentially a very interesting juncture. Oh, God. I mean, it's not going to fall through it, is it? Uh, who knows? I mean, it's, it's it's quite unlikely because you've got, obviously, two very large shareholders in Altria and Bevco, which between them own about 41%-ish. And they are obviously very pro the deal going ahead. And they're going to be able to opt for a part cash, part shares option, which... Um, allows them to sort of mitigate sort of tax liabilities, that kind of thing. Um, so it is, it's just an interesting point. To say it's going to fall through would seem a bit crazy because they've jumped through so many regulatory hurdles. They've had a, um, approval from the US, the, Europe, China. They've really been doing their work since the deal was first yeah, discussed in it's November. Been, it's been, been on the been brewing for it, quite some time. It has. So if it does come off the rails, it will be because people like... Elliot Aberdeen really, really do genuinely think that ABI's deal undervalues SAB. And actually, in Aberdeen's statement, they did say they would remain investors in SAB for the long term if the deal fell through. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. And uh, we, we got some more activism at the smaller end of the market, which is unusual. We don't usually get it at this uh, at the sort of FTSE 250 scale. Uh, speedy higher. Yeah. So, uh, a Tosca Fund, which is an asset manager and an activist in nature, um, has basically suggested the company should replace its executive chairman, uh, Jan Astrand. The reason they feel he should be replaced is because they don't think that a company should have an executive chairman and a chief executive. So when I say replace, what they want to do really is not have an executive chairman. Non-executive chairman. They want to appoint yeah, a director, a chap called David Shearer, who is a turnaround specialist. So they want to replace Mr. Astrand in person, but not in title, if that makes sense, and because of that belief. And they, they think that what Speedy Hire should have done is gone through with a transaction it was mooted to be considering last year and it didn't and that basically tosca fund believes that they can put uh, mr Shearer on the board and that will be of benefit to the company mm, okay uh, it's, it's interesting i mean generally speaking it's not considered best practice to have two bosses running a business on a day-to-day basis and it seems a fair point yeah, it, it does. It is a fair point. I mean, I guess, you know, what, what can you do about it? Otherwise, if you disagree with it, you could not buy the shares. But arguably, Tosca Fund clearly sees some value in this business. It owns almost a fifth of the shares now. So it's heavily, heavily invested yeah. um, in the company. And it really must believe that there is a market for what Speedy Hire does. Indeed. One last piece of interesting news was that Sencos are being uh, probed uh, for their involvement in the Quindell fiasco. Hardly a surprise. No, I mean, we, well, Alex, actually, conveniently, who's sat here, wrote quite a long piece, um, which I kind of helped him work on a few months ago now, um, which was in the wake, really, of a Sunday Times story about this relationship between Senkos and um, Quindell. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's, um, you know, at the time of that story, the shares dropped a lot. Senkos kind of reassured investors, the shares bounced back quite a bit. But now, um, you know, the company has confirmed there is an FCA investigation. Um there was um, another story which suggested a certain amount they were going to be fined, but Senkos did not sort of talk about any financial, um, you know, sort of financial 
impairment from the FCA so that that's um, potentially not sort of confirmed by the company or the FCA yet. Mm. Which, I mean it's probably it's probably useful to pro- provide a little bit of context about what this is you know whilst treading, treading carefully on what we can say about the matter but it's it was it was essentially for Senkos was a, the broker to Quindell now Watchstone Group uh, you know very controversial insurance claims business. There's a serious forward uh, office investigation criminal investigation to Quindell um, the rejection last December by Senkos was that they that they're not involved in that or weren't involved in that investigation, but it's since come to light this week that they've acknowledged that the FCA is is probing them. They couldn't, couldn't yeah, as you said, Brad, they can't, couldn't say more, but um, wouldn't be surprised if if that that could lead to some sort of resolution in the next few weeks. Mm. I, I guess some people would be pleased to hear that, that the FCA is doing its job and actually Absolutely. looking into some of these. Um, Situations where where there has been sort of sus- suspicions of, uh, of foul play, as it were. Um, I, w- I would say, and I think we've made this point a number of times, that I don't think it's fair to tarnish all of AIM with the same brush as this particular instance. Um, but it, but it does go on. But it's good that the regulator is picking up on it. I think is the uh, the final lesson to be said here. Absolutely. Final interesting story that was provided to us by Claire Barrett over at uh, FC Money was they've, they've commissioned some research and it seems that a lot of directors ha- uh, bought the Brexit dip. Absolutely, there was an awful lot of buying. Um, it's a really interesting piece uh, from Claire. Um, yeah, it just kind of shows actually that I guess watching what directors are doing in terms of buying and selling is quite a useful indicator because the um, I mean the, the one one example I'll pick out they um, the research kind of highlighted the purchase by the chairman of Berkeley Group, which is a London-focused house builder, um, Tony Pidgeley. He bought nearly eight hundred thousand pounds worth of shares quite quickly after the big dip, and has already seen a fifteen percent rise in their value. It's all right, isn't it? Obviously, not everyone's got 800 grand to just buy some shares, but the point stands that if there is a big dip and you believe in the company, it's established, been around for a long time. If the shares do pull off, it might be worth, if you have some cash available, to drip feed in a little bit more. I think this was our view, generally, um, as we saw that that hideous sell-off uh, in the wake of the referendum. Vote. I mean, everything was just sold off. Just, it was, indiscriminately. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, you know, I think we, uh, Jonas Crosland, who covers house builders for us and property, uh, yeah, even a week later when the we had this problem with the uh, closed... Sorry, we had this problem with the open-ended property funds uh, gating gating them from redemptions, you know, which which obviously had a knock-on effect for the for the REITs and the real estate market. You know, that caused some weakness. And you know, we've said all along, take advantage. Yeah, and I think I think we've been proved right. The FTSE 250 is now back to where it was pre-referendum it is yeah it's, it's marginally above yesterday of the point at which it was before the vote so it I just, mean, that's, that's amazing it is when, in such a short time frame yeah so well, you, you have to adjust as well for the the pound yeah but the FTSE 250 you know when you talk about the FTSE 100 people say ah, it's just the weak pound effect but the FTSE 250 mm. a lot of people say oh it's the domestic index and domestic you know economy screws and then the FTSE 250 shows this but now it's back to where it was you could argue it's the possibility of uh, accommodating monetary policy still uh, working through and, and, and the possibility of interest rate cuts um, yeah. lifting these stocks. But nevertheless, you know, not the doom and gloom that perhaps we, we were talking about a month ago. Not yet indeed, no. There you go. Some of us were, have been less negative. Uh, <laughs> but some of us have been through much worse things than this before. So there you go. <laughs> uh, right, Alex, let's uh, let's get on to you. Um, talking of uh, hideous sell-offs, um, <laughs> the oil price, I mean, 
you know, that was a, an extraordinary sell-off. And I, I actually took the trouble of printing out the graphs, which I seem to have lost. And here they are. So, uh, mid-2014, the oil price was about $110 a barrel, Brent crude. Uh, by January uh, 2016, it was down to $27. I mean, that is, that is a huge, huge sell-off. Absolutely. Um, and unsurprisingly, interest in the uh, oil and gas exploration sector, and particularly the smaller end of the oil and gas exploration sector, uh, which are much more dependent upon the markets for funding, um, really ha- has had a terrible, terrible time of it. But we had a bit of recovery this year, got up to about 47 50, no, $50, about $50. It's come back a little bit since. But nevertheless, we, we kind of, um, we kind of, more sanguine about the prospects for oil and gas exports than we have been for a while. I think if we conti- yeah, if we continue with the the example of uh, some of the smaller explorers, the recent weeks have shown a bit of a return uh, to the market by some institutional investors willing to back projects which a year ago I think just weren't getting off the ground at all. So uh, Savannah Petroleum's, which was one they're focused in the Niger Delta, they've got a CEO who's you know very very good at raising money nonetheless to be able to raise the sort of funds that they have uh sort of in the last month is is quite impressive really shows that there is some institutional appetite willing to take a contrarian bet now and they see oil prices stabilizing perhaps some point this year um i mean the the jury is still out a little bit as to when it will level off and at what point it will level off well because we've had a bit of a sell-off this week and you know the 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 sort of gloom is creeping Mm. back in i mean that sell-off is once again uh, a bit of a supply glut yeah but actually i mean fundamentally i mean before we talk about the explorers that you've profiled in this this great piece i mean let's talk about the oil price more generally and and you've actually put together three cases uh bull bear and the kind of middling Mm. middling case my view and this is the one that I often discuss with your predecessor on the beat, Mark Robinson, was that actually long-term, demand is there. Gas demand is, is not going away. Uh, oil demand, um, we use less oil in the West than perhaps we used to, but demand for oil in emerging markets is, is, is growing quite substantially. So, so the, the global demand for oil is growing mm. and will continue to grow. Absolutely. And, and if you look at the supply, you know, supply versus demand, it's very, very slim margins on which... You know the market has been oversupplied. It's just a, it's really a couple of percent which has sent that you know the price crashing down uh, mm. to the levels you, you mentioned before. So twenty seven dollars a barrel in February. Absolutely, that's the long term bull case for oil. The wind, you know, we we're still going to need fossil fuels. There's a lot, you know, there's huge swathes of the global economy which need more and more. And and really, if you're looking at a, a price of forty five dollars at the moment, that's too weak for investment. So. Presumably, at some point in the next in next year, two years, with all the the, the cutbacks that the large oil producers have made, that's going to lead to some a, a technical deficit, and that could that could be the big spike in the oil price. I'm not so certain that that's going to happen because of the effects of U.S. Frac- you know U.S. fracking is still. But you, but you mentioned here, producer. But you mentioned here that fracking. I mean, and this has often been said, you know. The life of a fracking well is short. Indeed, indeed. So it's not the same as the high volume assets the industry has gone after in the last fifteen years. That said, I mean, there's a there's still, you know there's a lot to frack in the US, and you know if we talk, we look at other parts of the world which are thinking of modelling their long term energy strategies on the US. You know, Argentina is one example. Some questions about that. Australia is is another where the, you know if they are able to replicate some of the. Um, you know the very quick turnaround uplift in energy production that could have a cap effectively 
on, you know, as ever seeing oil prices approach $100 a barrel. My view is somewhere sort of in between the bull case and this and this this case, you know, and we've had uh, the, 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 the managing director of Vitol, uh, sorry, the chief executive rather, recently saying that he doesn't expect $100 before 2020. And that's a big, you know, that's one of the biggest traders of oil in the in the world. That's not a producer talking up its own book. But what so. it says to me is that he does expect $100 a barrel not at necessarily. some point. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think it's, it's really unwise, you know, to try and forecast what's going to happen next week with the oil price. So, mm, mm. you know, it's understanding if I can understand his unwillingness to forecast, you know, beyond 2020, because who knows really what's going to happen next year, let alone in 2020 so yeah uh, it seemed that would seem a, a kind of a prudent uh, estimation and then the other the the other argument the bear argument for for oil at the moment i think it's more of a technical one i'm not quite convinced of this is we had one analyst put out a report this week saying that really the the rise we've seen so far this year from 27 dollars to 50 you know touching 50 dollars has not really been backed up by an improvement in fundamentals so there's no shortage of supply there's still quite a lot of stockpiling. And the argument there is that financial markets were expecting the dollar to lose some value. So they piled into oil as a sort of as a sort of safe haven as they have done with other commodities. I'm not so I'm not so sure about that because I mean we've had we have actually had supply disruption in Nigeria, in Venezuela, in Canada with the wildfires. So there are, you know, there are real arguments, not just the sort of financial yeah, I mean, um, you, you could make you could make the fi- you could make the financial argument the other way as well because we know that you know hedge funds were were, were heavily short of oil yeah. last year. So you know you could argue that, that that their influence had actually dragged the price down. And as they closed those those short positions, then it, then it kind of settled Indeed. at a more natural level. So I mean, you know, you could argue the financial engineering aspects either way. So I mean, you know, somewhere in the middle seems seems much. Yeah, more it should. Ba- you know, the financial engineering should balance its, itself out. I mean, this is the theory. Some people are worried worried about derivatives contracts in the in the oil market, but you know, it takes takes two parties to take sides. You know, e- either side of those those futures contracts. So, if we assume that you know the the case of oil is not as bullish as some people would suggest, and certainly nowhere near as bullish as it was back in the day when every, every junior oil and gas explorer was getting funded, but not as bearish either as perhaps was was the case in January of this year, then we should be looking for good assets that will will deliver some some decent size. Uh, oil fines o- over the coming years, and that's, that's what you've done in this feature. Yeah, so I mean, we've uh, I've, you know I've picked out twenty seven. I mean, it's, it's not really a, not really a magic number, but um, I was I was trying to look at the uh, you know of the aim and main market listed oil shares, the oil fields where I think you know there's probably the most hype or the, there's the most expectation of delivering you know sort of serious earnings to the to the company, and just you know pick through a few of them really. So I mean. The the issue you have with this selection is that some of the best you know the best quality oil fields in that list are owned by companies which have had to endure such a painful three years that they you know their balance sheets are, are quite stretched. Mm. On the other hand, there are some companies which have been completely carried, and they've you know they've they knew how much it was going to cost to fund these exploration pro- uh, projects. And now are ready to come online, and you know even at forty five dollars a barrel, they should be making quite a lot of money. Uh, one I think a single out is uh, Tullow Oil, which they announced this week that they're going to uh, their ten project, which is uh, offshore Ghana, is uh, is is going to hit first oil in uh, early August. I mean, for a company of Tullow's size, the sort of production levels that they're hoping to get by the end of the year, so eighty thousand barrels a day gross. 
they're pretty huge numbers. That's that you know that will generate hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars mm. to to Tullow a year. Yeah, Falklands even looks interesting now. Yeah, this was an interesting one because um, Shell discovered in the North Falklands Basin this sea lion oil field. It's now owned by or and operated by Rock Hopper Exploration and Premier Oil. Shell discovered it, I think, in the seventies when it was it was originally it was originally drilled in nineteen ninety eight. Oil was at about ten dollars a barrel. Uh, it's completely uneconomical. But you see the wisdom of how the oil market moves is that that might have been a perfect time really to develop the field. But, you know, it'd be hard to get funding then. Twelve years later, when the oil price is sort of touching $100 plus a barrel, then they go in. And now as it's come down, you know, the price has come down again. Um, it's actually going to come online, I think, in, 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 in the next couple of years. That, again, is a, you know, a you know, huge, huge uh, low cost asset though it's cost a lot to to get to this point but once it's up and running it's gonna be very cash generative to those companies assuming they can get over the line okay interesting stuff i mean there's 20 27 as you say oil fields in this feature many of which we've uh, are companies that we've got on are, are owned by companies that we have on buys many of those buys have come early this year some of them are good some of them are not so good but we're not writing the sector offers perhaps we we had chosen to do towards the end of 2015 as everything was heading into the doldrums no it's, it's great feature alex and uh, we've got a lovely map in there it's yeah. probably one of the most visual features we've done in a while credit credit to dom there well done dom so i so say it's been a busy result season presumably you've both been extremely busy give us a highlight bradley What's, what's, uh, what's been a highlight of your week? One thing that's worth mentioning, I guess, is, is William Hill. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's not actually had any results, but it's had um, a very interesting week, I think it's fair to say, because their chief executive, James Henderson, suddenly left the group. And he'd only been in the top spot about two years, but he'd pretty much a lifer at the company, been there more than 30. And then a few days after that, 888 and Rank Group, Rank Group being sort of more bingo-focused, company 888 more online gambling they submitted a bid to to buy william hill not a formal bid there weren't any proper financial metrics that were published but they have gone to william hill suggesting that the three groups become uh, one big group effectively and that would be an interesting thing because william hill has been the wallflower in the dance that has been gambling company um, deals in the past year or so because so many of his big rivals have tied up with somebody else and it has left William Hill a bit behind. Ironically, 888 um, declined a bid from William Hill about 18 months ago, I think, and so now the tables have turned. Potentially, William Hill, for its part, it wasn't really entirely sure if there were going to be some amazing benefits of this going through, but it's definitely one to watch and shareholders seem to be optimistic because the stock has gone up a lot this week. Mm, we've got that on a buy, haven't we? We have got it on the buy and um, it, it hadn't done very well until this week. So I can't say I foresaw a bid and the chief exec leaving as my drivers for the buy tip. But when I wrote the buy tip, it was up 10%. And I think actually in the whole week that this issue covers, it's up nearly 20. Indeed. It's an amazing industry, gambling. It's, uh, it's so fast moving. It's always uh, so much corporate action. It's almost impossible to keep up unless you're watching it day in day out it's true so, there you go alex what's your uh, i mean you've covered a few uh, areas this week bp i think you did uh howden joinery which is a bit off your beaten track mm-hmm. kitchens um but uh, let's let's talk gold acacia yeah. acacia uh, just like really st- a stunning set of results i mean occasionally companies mining companies just everything falls into place at the one time so obviously the gold price has done very very well in the this year and particularly in the last month post brexit 
And so Acacia's, you know, the, the timing of a 12% ramp up in production couldn't have, you know, couldn't have come a more timely point. Not only that, they're bringing cash costs down. It's um, making a lot of money. Isn't it, it is, yeah. I, I think the, 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 it's making a lot of money and I think prospects are, are, you know, very good for Acacia, particularly versus some of its peers. The thing I'm slightly nervous about the gold miners now is their valuations have just have left them with almost no breathing room or no room for slip up and effectively assuming that we're going to get similar, you know, double digit hikes in the gold price mm. uh, this year. I mean, that may be. It's uncertainty is the watchword of, of financial markets at the moment. But I, I mean, Acacia is, is that they're on, you know, such a high valuation. I took Rangold Resources off a, off a buy down to a hold last week because I think they're, you know, it's looking quite toppy there as well. Mm. Um, but you know, certainly can't fault them on the on the operational front. No, no, it's been extraordinary. I mean, you know, the the Fed not raising rates would have been helpful for the gold price, but uh, they're talking about September now. But then I think they were talking about September last year, and probably yeah. September before. That, we've, so. had, we've been here before, haven't we? With all oh, they're definitely this this word suggests possibly they might do it this time, and as you say, yeah, years later. Ah, yes, the Fed divining rods. Yep. Um, like forward yeah, guidance here. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Suffice to say, as you as you say, Alex, uncertainty is the watchword, and uncertainty is good for gold. So we're a little, little bit less bullish than we perhaps have been, but um, not uh, not negative either. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Lots more results this week, but we, we can't go into them now. Uh, next week, I think we have 31 pages of results. Yeah, it's, it's already busy. Like today, we're obviously starting our production week, and it's it's very busy. Yeah, it's about 100 results. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's mind-boggling stuff. We will get through it. Hopefully, we won't have killed over before we get into the studio next week. Anyway, uh, let's talk you through what we've got left in the magazine. Cash Clinic. This is a new thing that Algie Hall's put together. Algie Hall does our tips and our stock screens. And he's been begging me to do this for ages, which which is really putting some of that that, that analytical firepower to, to use to look at individual companies. And he's looked at this at, at this week at Marks and Spencer to ask the question, do they have the cash flows to support their dividend? And uh, I will leave you to read the piece to, uh, to, to find out the answer. But it's really chart heavy, lots of fun, strong financial analysis here. And this is something we're going to be doing uh, a lot more. Uh, in the in the future, we have more objects from Philip uh, understanding options which uh, I guess are quite a complicated area of the market, but these have been around for thousands of years. So it seems um, really quite interesting. Lots more in the personal finance and funds section, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. The usual tips, lots of results, as I said. Uh, comment from the trader, from Bearball, from Dillo and Simon Thompson, and even a little bit more left in news, which we hadn't discussed already. Absolutely. Wow. What a week. What a week. And next week's going to be even better. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Alex. And thank you all for listening. The magazine is quite a, an exciting and interesting and mind-boggling cover this week. <laughs> Bubbling up to illustrate Alex's feature, but you told me that bubbles in oil are not a good thing. Uh, maybe not. I mean, <laughs> B- BP this week has uh, finally gotten over its uh, its its oil bubbles in water fiasco. That's yeah, not, been been long running. But... Well, I, I'm not a I'm not an engineer. <laughs> I don't really know much about the actual extraction of hydrocarbons from a from a practical and technical point of view. So I apologise to the uh, the scientists out there that this is uh, this is perhaps an inaccurate representation of good things in the oil industry. But it's a lovely looking, lovely looking cover. So bubbling up, uh, assessing the world's most exciting oil fields, £4.70 in all good news agents. Uh, and you can subscribe online too. Thank you very much. See you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.